Hi, I'm Dennis Morashko, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation. We discuss the challenges and innovations shaping higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, I'm joined by Marie Sanderson, partner at Guidepost Strategy. Starting her career in public service on Capitol Hill for Senator Thad Cochran, she worked as his legislative assistant and deputy press secretary. She then worked alongside Governor Haley Barber as their policy director, before becoming policy director for the Republican Governors Association and Public Policy Committee. Marie also sits on several boards, including the Mississippi Arts Commission and the Children's Advocacy Centers of Mississippi. This year, she co-founded the MS 30 Day Fund nonprofit to support small businesses impacted by the pandemic. Marie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dennis. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, good, good. I'm excited about this conversation. So let's, uh, let's dive straight in. Tell us to begin uh, a little bit about your educational background. Uh, how did you, you know, put yourself back in the high school era? How did you decide on college? Like, what was that process like? Like, what, what went through your, uh, through your head at the time? Sure. Well, I started off um, in high school at a small Catholic school in Jackson, Mississippi, um, which made me uh, just begin a little unusual as um, a fun fact for you today. Only 2% of uh, Mississippi is Catholic. Um, and so I was a little bit of a minority at a Catholic school in Jackson. Um, but when I graduated from Jackson, I thought really hard uh, from high school, that is, about where to go to college. And I received good advice from a mentor who said, if you want to do public policy work or service to Mississippi, then going to one of our flagships is a good way to meet people from across the state. So ultimately, after applying to several places across the country, I ended up attending uh, Mississippi State University, which is one of our um, big state colleges. Um, But after that, I had another mentor say, okay, now that you've stayed in Mississippi and learned a lot about the state, now you need to go as far away as possible. So I did my MBA in Brisbane, Australia, not too long after I completed undergraduate, I took a little bit of time and did some internships and then went to do my MBA across on the other side of the world and came back with a lot of perspective. And so I had the benefit of mentors um, telling me to learn more about Mississippi and then go far away um, to get my schooling that has led to what I'm doing professionally. That's good stuff. Uh, you may be the only person who was I know you weren't told this, but effectively, if you want to do public policy and politics in Mississippi, go to Brisbane, Australia, because that's, because that's how you pick up on the relevant information. But of course, you're making a greater point. Um, it's good to be well-rounded regardless, regardless of what you do. What was it about politics and policy that uh, drew you to it? It sounds like back in high school, you knew that that's what you wanted to do. That's, uh, that's unusual only insofar as you know, to the extent kids know what they want to do, it frequently changes a million times in college, and then they emerge somewhere else. Uh, You stuck to it. Well, let me clarify what I said. I had a love for Mississippi, and I had this feeling that we could be better than we're presented. My father, um, we were not the family that went to the beach every summer um, and had our annual trip to the beach. My father would pick a place on the map, and we would get in our red minivan and drive there. And so, you know, while my friends were sitting on the beach or skiing, um, we were in Oklahoma, for instance, looking at, you know, Doromino's grave. So I, I wow. had a, a little bit of a, per, and I owe that to my parents, but I had a little bit of perspective about how people viewed Mississippi. And I had felt this calling to make Mississippi better, but I didn't necessarily enjoy or want to be in politics. I wanted to do business. I wanted to 
start a company or run a company or work for our chamber of commerce. I actually, um, the mentor I, I spoke of in the beginning um, was someone who worked at one of our uh, chamber of commerces who encouraged me um, to attend Mississippi State. So that part, I, I, I was close, but you know, no cigar. I, I did know I wanted to serve Mississippi, but I thought it would be in the business realm. Um, to your point about Australia, so I went over to Australia to do my MBA, and it wasn't until I got to, as far away from the United States as possible that I realized that I actually enjoyed politics um, because that was during the the Gulf Wars. Um, I had a lot of people from across the country, across the world, really. There were Americans in my class um, who didn't think like I did, but there were also um, Southeast Asians. Um, there were people from India, Australians, of course, um, people from Europe who, just in our business classes about you know statistics, um, would challenge me on what was going on in the world and America's role in the world. And at that point, I realized that I felt like merging my business background with politics um, would be super interesting in a way I could give back in, in more of a meaningful way. And so going all the way around the world is when I realized that it wasn't just business that I could contribute to Mississippi, but perhaps a role in policy as well. And that's an interesting perspective, Marie, and certainly highlights how, you know, when, when you go about acquiring education, right, you received a lot of it by virtue of those trips where, like, as you said, you didn't go to the beach in Mississippi, you went to Oklahoma, you went, you went somewhere around the country. And a lot of your perspective about the world, around the world, and uh, sort of shapes by, shaped by all of those experiences. You know, this, this podcast uh, that we're recording, it's called Rebuilding the American Dream. Talk a little bit about how, through those experiences, whether in Australia, Oklahoma, or frankly, anywhere in between, how did you begin thinking about what the American Dream is, how it relates to you, how it pertains to Mississippi, and, uh, and what, how people view Mississippi and or should view Mississippi as the state? Well, the American dream is a real thing. And I think you have to start with the base case that you believe that the American dream is real. And, and I do think it is. I have a number of friends um, who I've met who are the first in their family to go to college. Um, they, in America, you know, we, we try to do what we can to find someone's skill set and find the appropriate job for them. Um, and I think that is um, unique to United States. I think there are certainly other economies, um, the economies in Australia and Europe, they're like that as well. Um, but you can be what you want to be in the United States. Um, certainly there are lots of benefits to, um, having a family that has been to college before and has the know-how and the resources to get you there. But in Mississippi, you can't, and in the United States, you can have absolutely nothing and rise um, to be a leader in your state or, or a leader across the country by working hard and getting an education. Yeah, it's certainly um, my co-founder, Wade Ierle, and I, we, as we build our company, we talk a lot about uh, this notion of, you know, we get asked the question rather, so do you think that everybody must absolutely go to college to achieve the American dream? And we always say, no, that is not the case, um, but it's pretty clear that education still plays quite a bit of a role in the attainment of higher education. How do you, um, just, to just to drill a little bit further into this question, Marie, how do, you, how do you connect education, particularly higher education, to the American dream as you're looking at perhaps, you know, generation where, as you said, somebody didn't go to college and then their kids do, and sort of successively you get to a place in your family tree where, as folks starting to starting to go to college, their experience changes. Um, how do you think about all of that with respect to higher ed? 
the main thing, the main thing is you, you learn a skill, right? So if you go to college to be an accountant or you go to college to be a lawyer, um, then you're learning those skills. So that's you know, the first and foremost reason that someone chooses um, higher education. Um, but you also learn how to think. You learn how to think critically about things. Um, you learn how to write at a greater level than you did um, in high school. Um, you learn to be respectful of others and those interpersonal skills, uh, learning how to interact with people who look like you and act like you and then people who come from nothing similar to your background or, or in my case and in a lot of people's case come from the other side of the world. And so you learn um, how to deal with different schools of thought and how to communicate differently. And then they're very, not only in a conversation, but culturally how you interact with someone from a different culture. Um, and so the higher education is not for everyone. I like to say it is for some people, um, maybe sometimes even most people, um, but it does uh, give you um, the ability to interact um, with different people because um, of, I think one of the most important pieces of that is the interpersonal skills you learn. Let's fast forward then a little bit and you come back from, from Brisbane in Australia and you're now sort of deciding, right? Um, are you are you entering, strictly speaking, business world? Are you entering the world of public policy? Um, you've obviously bridged that gap successfully. Well, you've done public policy and politics, and then you're quite a, quite an entrepreneur yourself, Marie, as, uh, as as I've come to know, because you you now have your own business. Uh, talk a little bit about that journey. How did you get from there to here now? Well, when I came back from Australia, um, I had an MBA in international marketing. Um, and so while I had a love for politics, um, I still wasn't sure that that was the job for me. Um, I was more thinking I would volunteer at that point. So I did what a lot of people do. I had to go beat the pavement. I had to go interview um, and try and sell myself to different entities. And so I started my beating the pavement at international marketing firms. Um, in Texas because I knew that I didn't want to be in Mississippi just yet as a side note. Um, I always wanted to come home, but I was still, you know, spreading my wings for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, and then I had a friend who said, you know, you think you like politics. You think you don't want to work in politics, but why don't you come up to Washington for a few days and see what you think? So I went and had another number of informational interviews with people um, in Washington and found that I really enjoyed um, the intersection of business and policy. And with every um, job that people get, there's a little bit of luck involved. Um, and I uh, was offered a position with our senior senator and had the opportunity, um, the late Senator Cochran, um, who passed away a year ago um, last week, actually. But he was my first boss and let me work on business and politics. And from there, um, I never looked back. I've been in politics ever since. So after after Texas, and uh, eventually you you come back to Mississippi and you enter enter this uh, super exciting world. And it sounds like you had terrific mentors um, along the way, Marie. When did you decide that okay, now I've sort of I've done enough here in this space that I feel comfortable branching out on my own. I feel comfortable getting together with a couple of folks and saying, you know what? I can build a business here because I believe that uh, as an entrepreneur, I can make go of it. When did that come? Well, it came about 15 years later. Um, so I worked on Capitol Hill and then um, a little thing, uh, it's not little down here, but uh, the Hurricane Katrina, which was one of the largest hurricanes um, to hit yeah. the United States in 2005, 
um, I met um, our governor at the time, Governor Haley Barber, and he asked me to come home and work for him, which I did for another uh, seven years. Um, and then he um, introduced me to another area of politics that I was not familiar with, um, which is the political side. So I moved from policy to political, where you run races and you raise funds for candidates you believe in. And I did that for almost another five years. And so I feel like uh, that gave me a pretty good picture of politics. And so to answer your question, as with everything you do, you meet a colleague that you trust and you enjoy working with, um, who is my current business partner, um, Phil Cox. And he really said, you know, you've done a lot of good. You can still do good on the outside. Um, but why don't you try your hand at starting a business? You went to school to do it. Um, give it a shot. And it's like ripping a Band-Aid when you start something new, but I'm so glad we did um, because now I think in a weird way, I'm able to influence policy and politics even to a greater degree than being inside the belly of the organization in which I was working. Um, and so, you know, it took a friend and a, a little bit of pushing, but um, I'm glad I spread my wings. Well, and, I'm, and ripping the Band-Aid is a, is a great perspective on it because uh, it sort of resonates with us as entrepreneurs as well, where you... You decide to do something and uh, there's always a million reasons isn't it as you think about the decision to go off on your own there's always million voices that, that, that are telling you you know this can go wrong or that can go wrong and at some point you just have to say you know what despite all of the potential setbacks down the road i know i can do it like, i believe in myself i'm gonna go and i'm gonna do this and so i'm certainly from our perspective where we're sitting as a company we're like just terrifically grateful that you decided to do it because that's how that's how we got to working together. And Marie, you obviously know about degree insurance and where we guarantee college grad salaries for five years after we after they graduate. Um, and we believe it'll just improve higher education tremendously through higher enrollment and uh, gr greater graduation rates. You have your choice of clients. I mean, you, you have people knocking on your door. You have to turn down some work. What is it about this particular company that drew you to helping us achieve our mission? You guys are kind of a triple threat. I mean, really, in my mind, um, you kind of merge together all the things that I think are really important um, in the education sector. I think degree insurance will play a role um, in the public debate in the future and a very meaningful role in um, students' lives. Um, as I said before, I believe that higher education is not for everyone, but it's for most people. And I, what I think is fascinating about um, degree insurance and what you and Wade have created is that you're you're putting together technology and personal responsibility and the private sector and innovating a product that allows people to attain their goals um, i do think it's important that we're talking a lot at the federal level right now about forgiving student loans but you know i think there is something important about the personal responsibility of paying for an education I think we should be innovative about how we approach paying for one's education because it should be accessible to all. And what you're doing is providing a means for someone to be able to do that. Um, I've heard you say it before and I've repeated it. One of the biggest decisions that a person will make, they make it when they're 18 about taking out a student loan, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars um, to go to college. Um, it can be that high. It can be lower, but it can be that high. And, and why not give them some type of insurance and some type of sure bet that if they do what they're going to, what they said they were going to do, there will be a job waiting for them. It's good for the student. Um, it's good for their families. It's good for jobs. And it's good for 
wherever this person is located. Um, from a public policy standpoint, you know, I talked a lot about Mississippi as we began talking. You know, we have a lot of HBCUs in Mississippi. Uh, we have um, a minority population who is contributing a lot to our economy, but unfortunately, Mississippi exports a lot of our minority talent. And I see a product like degree insurance away, particularly if it was partnered with one of our public sector um, institutions as a way to uh, attract talented individuals um, across all ethnic levels to go to school, ensuring that they receive that degree, and then more importantly, um, working to keep them in the state, finding a way to use this policy um, to keep this talent at home. I think it's about a year ago, actually, I, I remember going to Mississippi and attending a conference uh, organized by, and you'll remember the name, Marie, and I don't at this point, um, the, the Speaker of the House. Oh, Speaker Gunn, yeah. Yeah, that's right, Speaker Gunn. And he organized this wonderful conference where he had several thinkers coming together to talk about this very subject, which is, uh, to put it colloquially, it's the brain drain issue. We educate a lot of people in Mississippi and then we lose them to nearby states because whether it's the lack of jobs or the lack of opportunity, or maybe it's perceived lack of jobs and opportunity where they don't know about certain things that, that exist. And so how do, you, how do you encourage folks to stay? And as I was sitting there and talking to some people in the room, uh, it, it is pretty clear to us uh, as the company, obviously, that we can, we can be quite an important voice in that conversation. You mentioned the federal policy conversation at the federal side, and we're engaging with a lot of folks on the Hill. Where do you see it connected the most, uh, Marie? Is it a state conversation? Is it federal? Is it all of the above? Like, where do you see the most immediate point of attachment where higher ed innovation that we're engaging in right now can really connect? Well, I think it's both. You know, th there's obviously a debate right now that's on everyone's mind in Washington about how much people spend to go to college. Um, we have, you know, President-elect Biden talking about free community college. We hear about the forgiveness of student loan debt. And so, you know, most of us agree that a postgraduate degree is important. I think uh, different, um, you know, parties or thinkers disagree on how we achieve that. Uh, making it free and having the public sector pick up pick up the cost of that um, is debated and is not necessarily universally shared. However, I do think that both sides of the aisle can agree um, that if the federal government were to provide tools um, to ensure that education um, is attained and that there will be a job at the end of the tunnel, um, that that is something that would be a very productive conversation at the federal level, particularly at the Department of Education. And so we, I think we need to um, raise this and have a conversation. Um, you can buy insurance for everything. Why not one of the most important purchases in your life? Um, but at the state level, you know, states have a lot of, a lot of authority. Um, you know, that's the role of federalism. Um, I do think as we head into a new administration, the federal government will maintain more control Historically, Democrat administrations um, keep a tighter grip on states about what they can and cannot do with funds. And but I but the states still have their own authorities. They still have their own funding streams. Um, they still have um, their own trustees who can be educated on these different types of products. They have alumni groups who um, are mission driven and, and share um, this important goal and making sure that 
enrollment at their universities stay high and that the, the value of education is also high. And so these are all things and all conversations that can be had at the federal level and the state level. Um, so I don't think that there's just one conversation that can be had. Um, it's education, and it's not just about the cost of education, which we obviously can contribute to, but also the value of education and how we'll improve college, college um, generally um, by making it more important and more accessible to more people to finish. Right, is the, is the higher ed conversation, and higher ed conversation can happen at all levels of government, and you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, despite the transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, which obviously may have um, quite a different impact in terms of uh, federalism implications and how the federal and the state governments work with each other, um, a product like ours, we, we always think of it as it's, it's an apolitical winner. It's not, um, it doesn't have a Republican or Democrat balance to it. It's a, it's, it's the kind of tool that you put on the table because why isn't there a guarantee that comes with this very, very important product? And as you said, you know, making college free, that conversation is, it, it's certainly interesting. I mean, we have our own thoughts about whether or not that's real and sort of how it's implemented. But at, at the end of the day, it probably is safe to say that, you know, paying for college one way or the other is, uh, is, is here to stay with us for the foreseeable future. And then the important question is, is the students get what they paid for? We talked a little bit, Marie, about HBCUs. Um, you mentioned there's a, a couple of them in Mississippi, obviously, and there's a hundred mm -hmm. of them spread throughout uh, throughout several states. What is it about HBCUs in particular that you see as 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 important here? You know, protecting them as an institution as opposed to other colleges, or perhaps you know, take all four thousand colleges together. What, what is it that you see about HBCUs as as unique in what they're serving and what the mission that they're providing? Well, HBCUs. Um, have a very important mission in society. You know, we have eight Mississippi, um, and they play a major role in educating um, minorities across the country. I think um, there's a statistic that 80% of all black judges in the country and 50% of doctors and lawyers are all HBCU grads. So it's clearly a difference maker. Um, they are definitely a role um, that we need to protect. Um, but again, they have cost, they're improving the quality. They are, you know, want to ensure that they are um, providing a degree um, that can be transferable across the American economy and across the world. And so, you know, there are costs associated with that. Um, and so we need to make sure that they have the ability to continue to educate and that, you know, a product like yours can ensure that um, these students can afford to go. We can't take our eye off the ball of the role that public education is playing, but we also can play a meaningful role in ensuring that the value of that education is realized um, by allowing the private sector to contribute. And I've learned in policy across time um, that if government would get out of the way sometimes, the private sector can innovate. Um, and I think we're showing at least in the public sector financing conversation, that the ability to innovate is providing a solution such as this that will help um, in particular HBCUs, um, which are so important to Mississippi's economy and others. Yeah, the, the statistic you mentioned is uh, it's astonishing, isn't it? Because you're, I mean, it's a fantastic statistic. And if you think about it, HBCUs, um, 
overall, they're responsible for, I think it's 3% of higher education outcomes in this country. So if you, if you look at all nonprofit four-year colleges, HBCUs are you know, graduating 3% of that cohort. And yet, as you mentioned, it's 80% of judges and 50% of black lawyers and doctors. And it's just a tr tremendous, which is why we, Wade and I, spend a lot of time thinking about how do we protect this super critical institutions. I think what I would add is, you know, we say that education is not one size fits all, right? Um, that's why we have, you know, colleges and universities in every state. Um, and I think something like this, you know, you're able to take the best of technology, the best of, you know, accounting and financing and create the best solution for each college and university um, so that, you know, the, the cost of education can be um, available to all students. And so I love how nimble you and Wade are being. I love the technology piece. Um, and I think how amazing it is that we're having this conversation when we've had such a tough year for higher ed generally across the board in 2020. So I would just close with, um, it's exciting to see um, you put your entrepreneur hat on in a way that's truly gonna help the future leaders of our country and the students. Um, and I thank you and Wade for doing so. Well, great stuff. Maria, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely a pleasure speaking to you. You've been listening to me, Dennis Morashko, co-founder of Degree Insurance Co. And this is Rebuilding the American Dream. Find out more on our website, americandream.fm, or follow us on Twitter, at Degree Insurance. Until next time, goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.